Zach Ripley here, and I've got another question for you. Presented by Communications by Design and the CBD team of instructional coaches, this is Transforming Learning. If there's one claim upon which all stakeholders can agree, at least to some degree or another, it is that to be effective and productive students, employees, and citizens in general, people need to develop foundational skills around thinking, interaction, and execution. We may not all agree on a single list of the most pertinent skills, but even in their discrepancies, such lists clearly represent the same ideal. Non-technical skills are essential. In 2010, the World Economic Forum published a list of the top 10 skills human resources departments for leading global employers suggested best capture the essence of how society and employment is shifting. That list, a prediction of the skills most needed five years down the road, surprised very few of us, including such items as critical thinking, complex problem solving, creativity, and people management. They went on to revise that list in 2016 to predict those skills necessary for employment in 2020. The new list closely resembled the old, with only two new additions, reinforcing the understanding that the most essential skills transcend time and industry, at least for now. In education, we've been thinking this way for some time. If you are familiar with our work, then you've heard us mention Tony Wagner before and his efforts to capture this idea in his book in 2008, The Global Achievement Gap. He produced a list of what he called the seven survival skills, including those very same sorts of foundational, non-technical skills like critical thinking, collaboration, and adaptability. After working with educators for years to develop and implement dynamic, innovative teaching and learning strategies, we repeatedly encounter the same challenge. While we can all agree that it is important to grow these skills in our young people, we find it persistently difficult to intentionally, profoundly impact the development of those skills in our students. Thus, here at Communications by Design, we have resolved to thoroughly pursue the answer to that question, to determine in practical, replicable, and intuitive means the answer to the question, how do we teach skills? In this episode, we dive into one of the foremost of those foundational skills, critical thinking. In many ways, teaching critical thinking is hard because thinking critically is hard. Students must not only be motivated and willing to engage with learning at a higher cognitive level, but also understand what it looks like to cognate to such a degree in unfamiliar and often uninteresting disciplines. On that note alone, one wonders whether we are asking too much. Consider an example from a high school math class. This is Luke Wilcox, 2017 and 18 Michigan Teacher of the Year, talking about his high school math classes. The other model, which is to give them the content first and then have them do an application, the thing that's missing there is, is the purpose. The purpose for the content that, that we're learning. Why? Uh, so, you know, when a teacher comes in and starts the lesson by giving all the formulas and the definitions, you're not really uncovering the, the why do we need this. And uh, when you flip that and you give the students the experience first, they're going to run into the point where they, they understand the reason why we need this new statistical concept or this new formula. And uh, I really think that leads to a better global understanding of things uh, and, and, and long-term retention. Uh, and, and definitely that, that long-term retention, students are always able to tie the content and the concepts back to an experience that they had. According to Luke, students need to understand why they are learning something before they can truly think about the learning. That's not specific to high school math either. 
The previous year's Michigan Teacher of the Year, Tracy Hordisky, indicated that teachers also need a sense of that direction. And, and unless we focus our time and energy on ensuring that every educator really understands how to ensure and empower self-directed learning and that they can take ownership of their learning, then I don't know how else we're ever really going to get there. Like when we think of like silver bullets, like that's, I think that's what people are always looking for. And there is no silver bullet other than a teacher in the classroom who knows how to ensure their learners know how to be learners. That's a great summary. Ensuring that our learners know how to be learners. It's a high goal, but it's also a simple goal. Author, speaker, and high school teacher Dave Stewart Jr. narrows that focus a bit to reflect on the importance of not merely giving effort, but giving, in his words, wise effort. We've got to teach kids what kind of effort to put in, right? So I teach this AP World History class for ninth graders. It's, it's not a class that ninth graders are supposed to take. It's too hard, okay? But I advocated for this class because I believe that challenge is a powerful motivator, and I knew that the young people in our small town could do this. And I knew that it didn't have to be a select group of young people. It could be a pretty broad net. Like as many as will fit in two sections, let's take them. If they want this, let's give it to them. And so what I've found in working with these kids for the past four years is that a lot of them are willing to put an effort, but it's, it's, it's unwise effort, okay? Hmm. I guess will be a way to put it. They, they're going to sit there and they're going to read the, the night's reading and they're just going to highlight everything. Okay, and that's not effort that the research suggests is going to actually enable you to recall that information later on or do anything complex with that information. You know, so I teach them how to take notes. And then what I'll find is students are taking notes for two hours each night, writing down practically every word in the reading. And so I have to teach them more about how to take notes that are shorter, notes that could serve as a study guide in the future. So I have to teach my students what kind of effort to put forth. What does wise effort look like? What's the point? It's not enough to just try. Students need to know how to direct their efforts. Similarly, it's not enough to just think. Students need to know how to direct their thinking. We might break that idea into two facets. First, we need to create protocols and processes, contexts, if you will, for thinking critically. Dave provided this clear example when he defined one aspect of critical thinking to be argument. We all want kids to think critically. That's one of the buzzwords. The problem is that's really vague. What is critical thinking? And if I ask 100 teachers to define that, I'm probably going to get 100 definitions, distinct definitions. Arguing is much clearer, okay? Now there's still, like you said, this baggage with the term. The kids picture fighting, yelling, winning, um, presidential debate where they're both just trying to like get points on each other. They picture this very, they picture this very adversarial, zero sum situation, which is not what I want. I want earnest and amicable, amicable argument, meaning like we're intense, we care deeply about ideas and evidence and logic, but we're also super friendly. We're constantly holding this flexibility to where we may need to change our view because of the winsome arguments of the other side. So when we have kids arguing in class, we get the engagement out of that. They, they love it. We get this chance to teach them like really high-level life skills. Serving as one example, it is clear that in the context of argument, students can be taught how to think critically. Second, then, students need something substantial to think about. If we want students to think critically and, and you know, all the buzzwords, name them, right? You know, right, you know yeah. be, be flexible and yeah. adaptable and communicate oh. and all that stuff. Yes. 
about what? <laughs> if I right, can't, right. if I can't talk about stuff, if I can't collaborate about stuff, I've got to have stuff. We need some surface level facts. We need some totally. deep, deep facts. Yes. Um, we need to apply and transfer and all that stuff. So, yes. talk a little bit about about knowledge building and yeah. why we can't let that fall by the wayside. So let's take Pete, just quick to illustrate it. Me, I'm a good reader. I I, I can read pretty well, right? And you, you can too, and everyone listening can. Like we're college educated educators, you know, we're, we're readers. So why is it that if you hand me right now um, something from like the Journal of Advanced Mathematics, I can decode it for you, I can read it out loud, but I'll understand like 10% of it. It's because I don't have knowledge in mathematics, Pete. I don't have the requisite amount of knowledge to comprehend that text. So. If we want kids to read widely and to read well and to be able to go out and read any text in the world, like these are some values of the English teaching community, they need to know a lot of stuff. So where are we on our guiding question? How do we teach critical thinking? We need to foster clarity of purpose and vision. That much is evident. We also need to create structures and, as we like to say in education, scaffolds to help students better access this arbitrary skill. And in all of that, we need something substantial to think about. That's a good start. But to make things practical, let's examine some strategies teachers are finding effective. And as Dave mentioned, critical thinking being a complex idea at the least, it may help to frame these strategies a bit. We break down critical thinking like this. Students are asking compelling questions, reflecting and thinking globally by connecting and applying ideas, and solving complex problems. Let's start with asking questions. Kristen Valamont, an elementary school teacher in Grand Blank, Michigan, shared a wonderfully simple strategy she and her teaching partner Jim Bowering attempted. So, what were Kristen? What were some of the groups that you had set up during the actual event? Uh, what were the students doing? So, there's many different roles that they um, partake in. We have a group of researchers. We have two students who ask the other class questions, the yes or no questions. Um, when the other class asks us the questions, we have answers, so they answer the questions from them. Uh, we have some recorders who are just supervising and watching and writing down what we're doing well and what we need to work on. A couple students are atlas mappers who are crossing off the states they know for sure that they are not from. And two note takers. So we have them on the whiteboards just writing down the facts that we have learned so far about their state. And a social media person who takes mm -hmm. pictures and videos. If you're not familiar with the formal Mystery Hangouts process, that's entirely okay. The clear benefit of that strategy was that students were charged with generating and asking the questions that would ultimately lead them to the solution. All the while identifying what they knew and what they still needed to know, resulting in more questions. That's a profound experience, and it takes little more planning than connecting with a classroom somewhere else and holding a 30-minute video chat with them. How about another simple strategy? Mike Dodge teaches high school math in Muskegon, Michigan, and shared a strategy he loves that utilizes the popular digital math resource Desmos. It starts with you picking a player, I shouldn't say a player, but a, um, a pitcher out of all these pitchers, of kids and then the computer guesses who you have by asking yes or no questions and you answering the yes or no questions. Um, and all of these polygraph 
um, polynomials or linears or quadratics or whatever um, start off this way just so kids can kind of get the idea of how the game works. Um, but after the computer guesses that, then it partners you with another student in class. And that student, and one of you is the person that's guessing, and one of you is the person that's selecting and answering yes or no. And then it gives you a, a screen with, I don't know if it's like 10, 20 um, different graphs, um, either polynomial graphs, quadrate, whatever one you're doing. And you pick one, and then um, the other player asks you questions as to um, like what your graph looks like. Gotcha. So they can they can say stuff like you know does it have an x intercept at this or does it have a y intercept here does it open up does it open down really you can do an activity like this before you even teach anything with it because they can ask questions like um, does it open up does it open down instead of like concave up concave down yeah. or positive a value or negative a value then the other person answers yes or no and you can kind of see how many questions it takes for them to get to the correct one and if they get the wrong one, it says no. And then <laughs> after each round, it gives them a question at the end to kind of get them to think. And then it'll partner them up with another student. Have you ever played the classic game, Guess Who? Why wouldn't that work in the classroom? Again, the simplicity is wonderful. Students are asking questions of other students and seeking to generate understanding through the process. We've heard a lot from Dave Stewart Jr. already, so let's consider one of his argument strategies. Another keen way to generate questions and defend ideas that he calls pop-up debates. So pop-up debate is simple to a fault, I always say. Just the rule is that every kid has to speak at least once. There's a maximum placed on their speaking so that no one can dominate. I usually set it at two initially. So two times, one to two times. And to speak, you simply stand up and speak. And if more than one person stands up at the same time, then I expect you to politely, um, with, with, you know, <laughs> with dignity yield the floor. Sometimes we'll film it and have the kids watch themselves so that they can critique themselves. Start in the middle of the year or so, that's just a way that I'll challenge them. In the beginning of the year, it's, it's very, very simple. So kids can overcome their anxiety about public speaking. You can see why, as Dave noted previously, knowledge is important. Without that baseline knowledge, a pop-up debate likely has little impact. But with the knowledge, the thinking that can take place during such a simple argument strategy is nearly limitless. Luke Wilcox also broke down his approach to teaching high school math, and whatever level an educator teaches, this experience, first, formalize, later approach, holds great potential. Yeah, so definitely the, the, the mantra of the site and of, of our teaching in general, both Lindsay and I, is experience first, formalize later. So what we try to do is we try to give students an experience where they are doing the thinking and the reasoning uh, to, to discover a new concept, but without any of the messy uh, formulas and definitions, they're just doing the thinking. And so each activity starts with, a, uh, or each lesson starts with an activity where students work in pairs or in groups of four to sort of work their way through something. And then after they've had the opportunity to go through that experience, uh, as teachers, we then facilitate a debriefing of the activity where we formalize the learning. And that's where we would provide formulas and definitions, uh, sort of the more traditional uh, things that you would think about. But I think it's just so important for students to have that uh, engagement with the thinking and the reasoning first before we get all complicated with, uh, with the formulas and the definitions. 
As mentioned, another angle of critical thinking that we tend to observe in both education and beyond is that of reflecting and making connections. Every educator under the sun wants students to understand how that which they are learning in a given moment connects to something greater. How often, however, do we explicitly design such considerations into our instruction? Here's one more from Dave, a strategy he learned from a researcher named Chris Holloman called Build Connections. So there's this researcher in Virginia named Chris Holloman, and he's got this exercise called Build Connections. Build Connections. The thing with the Build Connections, what you're doing is you're having kids brainstorm how specific things that they've learned you know, in the preceding few weeks, how those connect to specific things in their lives hobbies, goals, aspirations, other people that they know. And then you're sitting there and you're having the kids discuss with one another and as a whole class, how does this relate to real life? So this is a student-generated value approach. It's neither difficult nor time-consuming and potentially yields profound impact on students' sense of the value of their learning. That makes it doubly worthwhile, in my opinion. How about then problem-solving? Clearly, few elements of teaching and learning do not involve some element of problem-solving, but according to Jackie Jackson, an elementary teacher in Rockford, Michigan, we might be missing some of the most important opportunities to grow this skill. One of the things you just articulated, too, that is really powerful is the idea that the students can speak into that situation and that structure. So there can be opportunity for flexibility if needed, and especially if the students can articulate to you, this isn't enough time for us, or we would like to see more or less time with something. And then just like if, for instance, reading, if they're showing me that they need help decoding or they need anything else, our life skills and our executive functioning skills are exactly like that, where I'm going to continue teaching if they're showing me they need more time organizing their drawer or they need uh, more structure in putting things back correctly. Um, they need more time communicating with each other. Whatever executive functioning skill they're showing me that they need, that ketchup and pickle time is spent devoted to that, where a lot of times teachers feel like it's a punishment. So like, oh, you can't do this. Well, then you're going to do it during that. But really, this is just a practice time. So whatever it is you're showing me you need to practice, that is a practice time for whatever skill it is. And they see it once you correlate that to, oh, you're showing me you need to practice this, then it's, it's not a punishment. They're showing me that they need that. Creating space for the, for the executive function, for the outside the academic sphere things that as first graders they absolutely need. We ask students to solve plenty of academic problems, but how often do we ask them to solve, as Jackie noted, executive functioning problems? Most of those decisions tend to be made for our students in education. But the moment they exit the academic world, very few of those decisions are likely to be made for them. That discrepancy should present at least a bit of urgency. But even in an academic sense, there's a chance we might be able to approach problem solving even more effectively. Consider Mike Budziak, an elementary STEM teacher in Gibraltar, Michigan. We're really covering a lot of the engineering design process. So we kind of go through it with all the grade levels, but one of the main things is you start with um, just asking a question about, you know, what do you see out in the world that you might want to change or what do you see happening in the world? So the students are, you know, asking what are problems, what do we need to work on? Uh, the next thing they're working on is they're working on what's called the imagine. So they're, they're taking whatever the problem is and they're trying to come up with, you know, brainstorming ideas. You know, how can we solve this problem kind of thinking outside the box? Um, 
after they're doing an imagine piece and kind of drawing out details, kind of like a brainstorming, then we're gonna go to what's called a planning phase. So you're gonna plan, okay, how do I take my ideas? How do I actually put them together? What kind of materials will I need? And, you know, drawing diagrams, coming up with what you need to work on those pieces. You know, how can I actually put it in place to make it work? You take the plan and you're working on, the next step is to create something. So how do you take that and test that plan to make sure it works? So you're gonna make a prototype and you're gonna kind of test that prototype to see that it works. Um, and then it's a continual process. So after you create your prototype, you know, okay, it worked, but what could you do? The next step would be to improve upon it, to make it even better. You know, how could I make small little changes to make something better? It probably doesn't fit with every problem we ask students to solve, but that makes me wonder if we aren't spending just a bit too much time asking students to solve too simple or mundane of problems. The most important problems, whether in life or academia, after all, rarely involve a single binary solution, even those that seem to often change when broached in new contexts. Which leads me to reflect one more time on our goal for this episode. Critical thinking is not the kind of thing you teach with a four-step how-to video. It's not even likely to be teachable in a direct or explicit sense. Like any truly fundamental skill, it must be practiced. And not in one grade level or subject area, not in one activity or project, not by one teacher or department. It needs to be practiced all the time, in all areas of teaching and learning. Back to our question, one last time then. How do we teach critical thinking? We start with clear purpose and vision for our learning, meaningful learning in a meaningful way. From there, we incorporate strategies that compel students to ask questions, reflect and make connections, and solve complex problems, all while engaging with substantial ideas and knowledge. Truthfully, we probably only just began answering the question, and we're not likely to see its resolution anytime soon, if at all. But if we've achieved our goal, then we've at least given you some practical ways to impact the critical thinking of your students tomorrow. And if you found these ideas and strategies helpful, let us know. We at Communications by Design offer a wide range of services to support educators and would love to support you more in your efforts to create successful students, innovative classrooms, and thriving schools.